Hello and welcome. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast. Coming up, Tom Allen shares the stories from his tongue-in-cheek memoir, No Shame. Greg Wallace whets your travel appetite in brand new show, Big Weekends with Greg Wallace. And Cleves delves into her ninth book from the Vera Stanhope series, The Darkest Evening. And music legend Niall Rogers shares all about working on the new version of chic hit Everybody Dance with DJ Cedric Gervais. But first... Here's Maria. <laughs> oh, hello. Did you bike in this morning? Of course I did, yes. Well, My little well bike done. tried to take me to the old place this morning. <laughs> did it? Yes. It's on automatic pilot. I don't know what I was thinking about and suddenly I was halfway down the hill. I went, oh, no, no, no. Don't Stop. go to the old place, Graham. There's no seat for you there. <laughs> no. I'd be in reception. Finally, they'd know who I was. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, how I should are say you? to you this morning, um, bonjour Graham, comment ça va? Oh, of course, you've been watching a Call Mon Agent. <laughs> I have done so many Call My Agents and um, last series, not so good. No, there was one episode, I think you know the one, <laughs> it's so bad. Sejourney Weaver. Uh, well, I, I, you didn't I, say that, you didn't say no, that. I, didn't. I was just speculating on which one it might be. Yeah, and I could not possibly confirm. Yes. I've had somebody on Twitter this morning, Graham, say... Um, we haven't heard anything from Ahmed in the um, in the purple shop of late. Is oh no, he, he doesn't okay? own the shop, does he? He doesn't own the no, shop. He no, he doesn't own the shop. There. No, no. They give him the early shifts. That's how I see him. And I I can report that he is still very well and um, has not found his glasses that he lost the expensive oh, ones with no. the prescription in. Why couldn't he have lost the cheap ones? You know, one ninety nine. And every time I go in there now, he just says to me, "Get out." <laughs> And so when it's busy in there and I go in, he says, get out. People just look at me as if to say, oh, she's obviously a shoplifter. <laughs> Poor so now I retort with, no, you get out. <laughs> <laughs> I did love your televisual show last night. It was fun, it wasn't it? Such lovely energy. And I just, I love Felicity Kendall. I'm always trying to go, oh, Tom. Um, but I just thought if aliens came down from another planet and you had to show them an actress, you would show them Felicity Kendall, right? She is a proper actress. She has, pro- <laughs> yes. she has got a proper actress brain. She's learned too many lines over the, over the years, I think. <laughs> and she never knows which ones are going to come out. <laughs> but I do like her. She's lovely and fit as a flea. I mean, no. she must aerobic up the wazoo. I mean, just incredible. I don't know how old she is, but I think she's over 70. So, you You're know, right. hats off. Yeah. No, she is. And, but, you know, when I, because before the, you know, there's a virtual audience, so they can see us. So I still, at the beginning of the show, they, you know, watching at home, you don't see this, but I introduce them onto the stage. I say, oh, tonight we've got da da da. And on they go. And, you know, Felicity Kendall, it was actually was fired from a cannon. She, but I <laughs> think you're right, though, when you said that people are watching um, The Good Life because they're just trying to sort of hold on to a lot of a past time in some way where things were kind of easy and sitcoms were gentle and nothing much happened. Um, I just think The Good Life has had such a... It really should do it again. But well, it's on It's can't. on gold, and it, it really does kind of stand up. I mean, you know that it wasn't filmed today or yesterday, but, uh, but it's still a, a lovely, lovely watch and properly funny. I mean, people slipping around in pig muck and falling over, hilarious. Uh, you know. <laughs> of course it is. It will always be funny. <laughs> I am trying to um, emulate Felicity Kendall by go- continuing with my swims yesterday graham i have to say it was so warm in the sunshine you know we have a strange microclimate down in of the south course. it was sunny here as well um but it was really properly warm on your face so I, when i was in the sea and my face was exposed to the sun it was just adorable but then from the neck down absolutely ridiculously bone clenching like the opposite but- of a hot tub Oh, I mean, yesterday I just found it very, very hard. It is only four degrees. But when you come out, do you feel marvellous and you're 10 years younger, which is, you know, an, yeah. a bonus, surely. I mean, you've been telling me about this for months. I'm still unconvinced. Unconvinced of whopping. I still want to bring you down and uh, take you into the water. Um, and congratulations on getting René Jean-Page, the Duke of Hastings, um, from Bridgerton on your show. Isn't he adorable? He's, I mean, he is sort of distractingly handsome. You know, because I, you know, because I've met a lot of actors 
actors and you kind of think, I'll be fine. And then he's there and he's like a doll. I mean, it's like somebody carved him out of soap or something. He's just... It's annoying when that happens, isn't it? I, I mean, really I see him often, in because obviously I live in Hastings, in the co-op. And, uh, of he course, because he's the Duke so of. He's the Duke of, he's yes. He's the Duke of. I mean, he doesn't take his duties very seriously, <laughs> but he pops into the co-op occasionally in his slippers. Does he help with um, packing? Does he what? <laughs> does he help with packing? <laughs> no, I've never seen him do that. Frankly, he's rather grand in the co-op, can I say? <laughs> um, no, because he was a little bit... His voice, I, I thought he would sound as posh. I mean, it's pathetic. Why would I think that? But I thought he would be as posh as his character. He's a bit more South London, isn't he? Yeah, he's a bit more real. He's a bit more real, a bit Which more on the streets. More. I fell off the e-bike, Graham, in the week. Oh, no. I know. It had to happen, didn't it? It was raining. Oh, if people haven't been listening, that sounds like you, you've you started taking drugs again or something. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, again? No. <laughs> but no, she she uh, she owns an electric bike, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, and I'm guessing she fell off, the off the it. E-bike. Yeah. Sorry. I was just coming up, man. Oh, I've um, fallen off no, the e-bike again. <laughs> Sorry. I My purse fell out of my coat pocket. And so I tried to stop the e-bike to whiz back and pick it up. Yeah. Um, and people had said to me, purse, purse. You know, <laughs> like that. <laughs> waving. You can't see me waving. Oh, it's so exciting and in Hastings. <laughs> I know, really. And as I tried to purse. turn around, I was holding on to the brake, but still with one foot on the pedal. And people with e-bikes will know if you've got a foot on the pedal, it activates the engine. And so I sort of zoomed around and squidged off and Dolly just jumped out of her basket and wandered off thinking, oh. I've had enough of this rubbish. Oh, I'm, <laughs> and then, I... of course, nobody could help me because of social distancing. So they were all just flapping, going, no, your purse. Oh, careful, the bike. And, oh, embarrassing. I remember I just, when I was on a foreign exchange trip to France in my teenage years, we had little mopeds and um, I'd never ridden a moped and uh, I was... St- the moped, the engine was running and I was standing beside it holding it and I pulled it back towards myself but accidentally then I twisted the accelerator yeah. and it just took off and I was left holding a handle with some wires <laughs> and uh, some very grumpy French people. So you didn't go with it. I mean, in the 80s, you could just tell when people would greet you with a very nice suntan and a plaster cast on their leg. And you'd say, you just come back from Greece because people were always falling off their motorbikes in Greece. That was kind of like, you had to do that. It it's a silver normal. lining. It's a silver lining for us not being here. Uh, darling, it's time for you to go to your little post bag and uh, oh, yeah. you know, prepare yourself mentally and physically for Graham's Guide. Virgin Radio. Dear Graham and Maria, my life at home has been very unhappy for some years, but I've stayed for the family unit. I'm having an affair with someone 15 years younger than me, and I've never felt love like this. She makes my life worth living and is like me in many, many ways. I'm ashamed to say this is my third affair, and the woman I love has given up on me after two years because I won't leave my wife. It's been two weeks and I miss everything about her. She's the love of my life. My two daughters have been away at uni for a few years and are now home due to COVID, but it's not family to me when it's the two of us that barely talk. The last few years have made me think of my retirement and how I don't want to spend it. What do I do? That is from James in Somerset. James in Somerset, when you say, I'm ashamed to say, this is my third affair. I don't think you are ashamed to say. I think, James, in some of that, you quite want to have it all, which we all do, but it's not possible because there's a lot of deception going on here, isn't there? You've deceived your girlfriends, uh, plural, three of them, your wife and yourself. I mean, <laughs> look, you say she's 15 years younger than you. This is obviously not your first rodeo. You're gonna continue this process if I'm not mistaken. And at some stage, no one will want to take you on because they'll think, mm, no, he's going to get old in a minute and then I'll have to do all the things. So, you know, wondering about your retirement and how you don't want to spend it. If you're not very careful, James in Somerset, you will spend it alone. I just think there's a sort of childishness about this letter that makes me a little bit cross, can you tell? And uh, you have to just start owning things and uh, making things. Have you tried to make things? Graham, you have to speak because I'm a bit cross. Well, look, when he says, what do I do? Well, 
do something. That's what you need to do. You can't, you know, he, he's saying, oh, and my, the, the girl I was having an affair with left me and I'm so sad now and I don't like my wife anymore. And da, da. Look, just fix, do something. You're not happy. There's no crime in falling out of love with your wife. There's no crime in a relationship ending. What you're doing is making that a, a thing that is no one's fault much, much worse by having these affairs. If you want to leave your wife, leave your wife. If you don't no, want to leave... No, but I don't think he does. Well, then, well, then he, he needs he to says, shut up. He needs to shut up and... I know, but he says after two years, uh, she's left me because I won't leave my wife. Well, you know, if you're so unhappy, James and Somerset, why don't you leave your wife? Because you want that security, you want the excitement, but you don't want to be on your own and you're not, you don't trust yourself to kind of not do it all of this again and have to or have the upset. So you're in a kind of... You're in a limbo, but it's also a stalemate. Yes, that I think means... also he's one of those guys who he doesn't want his daughters to think he's the bad guy. And he does, yeah. you know, all of that. He doesn't want their social circle to kind of judge him. But I, I do think you've got to address the relationship you're in before you start having relationships with other people. And whether that's making the relationship you're in better or whether it's ending the relationship you're in, You've got to do one of those things. This cannot go on. You are. I mean, a very I read that letter man. and I think I read that letter and I think his wife must be so unhappy, and you know they're both locked in this kind of stalemate. Probably both want to leave. Maybe financially can't. Or I think he he needs the stability of the family unit. He's been with that for a long time. If she's the love of your life, the one that you've had an affair with for two years. Why don't you leave your wife? But, you know, you say, I won't leave my wife. What is going on here? You cannot have it all, James and Somerset. You are hurting a lot of people. Including himself. You... Including himself. He's making yeah. himself miserable. No yeah. one no one is winning. It's not like he's, he's playing a blinder here. He's having a horrible time and he's making everyone else's life miserable as well. Um, I kind and, of want his wife to say, oh, guess what? I'm leaving you. And then he'll go, Wah, what, what, what? No, but I love you. I can't cope without you. Please don't leave me. You know, it's that kind of scenario because he's got his cake and is mangeing le gâteau at the same time. Oh, See that? Call my agent. Um, so <laughs> I, do, I do think, though, uh, at least the affair woman had the gumption to slope off into the, the night. After two years? Well, that's an all, not... Well, it's more gumption than a lot of mysteries. Show. <laughs> yes, but if somebody is constantly saying to you, "I will leave her. I'll leave her when the children go to university. I'll leave them when they. Feel, I'll leave her when they leave school." It's you know, people out there who are in this, this scenario, they won't ever do it. Trust me, they will not do it. Dump them. Find someone who is more worthy of you. Yeah, or available. Uh, that's I think, <laughs> yeah. that's I think the key to dating. <laughs> date someone who's available to date. Uh, James from Somerset is not available. James from Somerset, I I feel for you in a sort of weird way because do you? Well, I do because he's he's become so kind of stuck. He can't see that actually there are lots of ways out of this situation, and he needs to take one of them because this is making everyone miserable and making himself miserable. So This is his third affair, Graham. He's been having an affair for his entire life. And if he leaves his wife for one of these affairs, it will just happen again. How many how many wives, how many affairs do you want to have, James? I think you want it all. Um, well, you know, he might slow down. Anyway, the great news is none of us are dating James. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, really. So win-win for us, hey? Jennifer in Falmouth, your third affair... I think you know you need to leave your wife by now, even if there's not someone on the other side waiting for you. Tim Colchester, does your wife know about your affairs? Come clean. It's unfair on everyone involved. Uh, Rachel from Poole. My advice for James from Somerset is to get over yourself and free your poor wife from your lazy, cheating ways. You want to have your cake, eat it, and make a trifle out of it just because you're too lazy to leave your wife and commit to a life you say you want. But the fact that you had to mention that the woman you were seeing was 15 years younger than you sounds like bravado and showing off. I thought that sounded... That was really like, really? We needed that detail? Like, ooh, wow, James, you must be really hot. Wow. Uh, why would you put that in the letter? Anyway, um, if you want something, stop whinging and commit. I think your wife deserves better than you. 
Uh, do everyone a favour, especially your wife and daughters, and leave today. Jenny in Belfast, harsh. Uh, James will not change unless he does some soul-searching on himself. This is from Victoria in Stratford-upon-Avon. It's not about the women, it's about him. My father was like this, serial philanderer, and as soon as he started a relationship with one of his mistresses, he'd have an affair again. It's about feeling wanted, attractive and desirable. James, go and get some professional help. It does sound like sort of there is <laughs> there is some therapy needed in this situation. Uh, James needs to think about the other people in his life. I am one of those women who has been waiting for someone to leave their partner for 15 years. And it hurts. Always hoping and expecting with one excuse after another as to why the time isn't right. He is a coward who won't face the truth, whatever that is. Karen, that's from Karen. I mean, Karen, you're a whole other kind of worms. 15 years. I think the clue phone is ringing for Karen. And uh, final word, Christine from Newmarket. James, if I was your wife, I would divorce you and take you to the cleaners. Well, there you go. Graham's Guide. Dear Graham and Maria, when the pandemic started, I was teaching, and even though I was working at home, I had a red regular schedule to keep up. But I retired last June in order to start more creative endeavours, namely a career in writing. I decided to give myself a summer break, and then I started writing and submitting in earnest last fall, autumn for us. But I am the world's best procrastinator. I know part of this lockdown fatigue, but I, I know part of this is lockdown fatigue, but I see so many other people making the most of the lockdown and being super productive. How do they do it? I don't need to work as me and my partner live comfortably. Mm. So I worry that feeling is uh, that feeling is complicating my motivation. Graham and Maria, how can I kickstart my motivation and follow a disciplined plan of action? And that is from Sarah in Colorado. Well, Sarah in Colorado, I mean, I don't quite understand because you say I started writing and submitting in earnest. I perhaps, you know, just pages to get yourself uh, a deal. But I would say, don't worry about this. For every one person who's making soda bread and learning Cantonese, there's 10 who haven't brush their hair for a week or and sitting in elasticated sweatpants i.e me so i mean writing is all about discipline it's so much more than just having a creative idea you have to sit down every day at your computer and make yourself put something on the page there's the saying that you know don't get it right get it writ because you can always do something if there's something to work with you can always edit and use bits and edit bits but if there's nothing there, you can't do that. So just make sure you do, what, 500 words a day. You just have to find the thing that is motivating for you. Yes, you're comfortably off, so you don't have to do it, you know, to earn a living. But if you were a teacher, you've had stuff in your life and you need that now. Otherwise, you will just vegetate. So discipline is the thing and make yourself sit at your computer for at least two hours every day, I would say. You, Greg, really? you know about this. You've well, done it. Well, times. I would say, why make your life miserable? You know, you've retired, you've got some money, so you're okay. So write when you want to write. Write when you've got an idea. Don't make yourself miserable. Yes, you won't be as productive as you could be, but you'll have quite a nice life. So when you're writing, you're enjoying it. Not that you're thinking, oh, I've got to sit in this room for three hours and I've only written ten words. Why Why are you beating yourself up? You have but retired. I think, Graham, if she's worked all her life with a very strict schedule as a teacher, um, and then obviously lockdown happened, she gave herself a summer break, woohoo. But then you suddenly feel, oh, wait, I have no use anymore. Uh, you know, to, to retire is very hard. And you have to find a use for yourself. You know, you think when I retire, I'll do nothing and so on. But if you're used to a very hectic routine, it's quite daunting and alarming. Um, so I, it doesn't have to be writing. Creative endeavours can be painting, can be, you know, mending a gate. It, it, it's many things, but I think a schedule, we've talked about this before, about in, in lockdown, a schedule that you sort of follow every day, loose enough to not give you craziness, but also tight enough to make you believe that there's things going on well which there are of course i mean write lists write lists is the thing yes no one will publish those i feel uh, I... <laughs> no. 
My book of lists. <laughs> Here's some I wrote earlier. Yes. What? Smooth out duvet. Um, <laughs> Sarah, I, I just feel, though, that this will come. You know, I think she's... I, I, what I feel is she needs to be nicer to herself and enjoy things a bit at the moment because it, she's putting this huge pressure on herself for no reason. And if, as you say, what this is is because she's a teacher, she's used to being busy, da da da, da then it will come. That will, you know, it'll it will find her and she will end up in a routine in a room, but it will happen kind of organically. It'll happen the way that it's meant to. I don't think she can force this right now because she's just going to make herself unhappy for but it is no that thing. reason. I mean, if you want something done, ask a busy person. You know, you've churned out a few books. I don't mean churned out, but you've no, no, you've said books. it now. You've written some beautiful books and you do your TV <laughs> show and you do the radio. I mean, you know, I think it breeds itself. When you're busy, you always want to be busy. Uh, and if you have time out, it makes your mind go elsewhere. So I do think you need to keep things in your life that make you busy, even if it's not writing. I agree with you, Graham, that don't beat yourself up about it. But you need to feel that you're worthwhile, even to yourself, even if you don't publish, even if you don't show anyone the pictures, even if you don't read out loud the poetry that you write. Just keep that brain going as it was yeah. for however many years when you taught. Um, Sarah, also a teacher, not yet retired. I think Sarah needs to have a structure. Going from a busy, demanding job to lockdown boredom. Find things you enjoy, running, photography. She needs inspiration to inspire her writing. And actually, the other thing you need is to that the time is precious. You know, you need to fill your day with something so that, ooh, I've only got a few hours to do my writing, I better get in there. Because otherwise the day just spreads on and, you know, there's always time to do it. Hannah in Bath. Get a friend or your husband to hold you accountable. Make sure it's not the only thing you're spending your time on and set targets for yourself that other people can check with you. Might put the pressure you need on a bit. Yes, I think also would lead to arguments. Because if your partner is going, where's that writing? That's going to re that's going to wear off <laughs> very soon. Now, there's a, I've never heard this before. Jill and Lester. Painting helps writing hugely. Even just a couple of splodges, the colours and pictures will get your mind going and get the inspiration flowing. And right there, it's another hobby. So, you know, if you're not writing, you're painting. And, uh, Sarah in Colorado, beautiful scenery. Yeah, get out of there. Louise in Kidderminster. Back to the drawing board, as it were. At mind maps of plot points. Mind maps. It's so 2021. Uh, make any characters and their profiles separately and then work them together. Henry and Gloucester, uh, this, this, we missed this point. Henry and Gloucester goes, you're a teacher <laughs> or an ex-teacher. What methods did you use to get your kids inspired? I mean, this is true. <laughs> she must have had some tips for kids. Uh, use those, even if they feel childish. Very wise. Uh, Jacob in Huddersfield. Oh, Jacob in Huddersfield, he knows the way to my heart. I agree with Graham. <laughs> yes, Jake Finn Huddersfield. Don't stress yourself out about don't stress yourself about this situation. But if you are determined to be productive, then I would recommend creating a space in your home free of all distractions and make it a place of productivity. And also, uh, a friend of mine, he had to buy safes. He had timed safes to put his phone in. So he couldn't go look at his phone. He had to kind of set a timer on it and say, in an hour, I'll allow myself to look at my phone. But uh, like, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, anyway, so maybe Sarah should get one of those. Uh, if you find yourself procrastinating whilst you're in this space, leave immediately. Oh, hello. And come back when you are ready. It is important that you associate this space with being productive. Jacob in Huzzleville sounds like a life coach or something. Some very good advice. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Uh, good morning, Tom Allen. Good morning, Graham. Lovely to be speaking to you on a Saturday morning. I'm under a duvet. Can I, can I say, because... you sound you sound like you're in some sort of clever recording studio or something. Is this your podcast central? Oh, does it work? Well, this, <laughs> yes, well, sort of. It's a 10.5 tog I've got over my head. I'm just trying to deaden the sound in what is, frankly, a very echoey room. Well, you've done very well. It's It, it sounds gorgeous. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank uh, you for that. Uh, now, uh, someone was just, uh, you probably maybe heard them, someone was just texting in gushing praise for your book. 
<laughs> well, that was, I did actually hear. And um, I loved it, actually. I love praise. So thank you very much to that lady who had been reading my book. I think she's on the last chapter. There's a big twist at the end. Um, <laughs> turns out turns out I'm not actually gay. No, it doesn't. Yeah, you're just wearing a bald cap. Uh, you've actually got a big afro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Tom Allen, no shame. The book, it's one of those things. I, were, were you surprised when you'd finished it and you kind of looked back on your life? Because obviously, you know, we, we live our lives and we just get on with them. It's a day and now there's another day. But when you actually kind of <laughs> fix it and you look back, were, were you kind of shocked by who you were? Oh, that's a, a good question. I suppose, yes. I mean, I've always felt like I'm a bit eccentric. I don't know if you've ever picked, picked up on that. <laughs> um, but I um, have always been a bit of a... Well, let's say it a weirdo and i think for a long time i was always kind of quite confused and quite conflicted and didn't know who i was supposed to be and thought i should try and blend in but then didn't quite and 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 then i got to a point where i was like oh actually you know what no one's here for a long time we're here for a good time um but but it was only really putting it down on the page uh, as i did last year that you go oh actually that was that taught me you know xyz that taught you know going through say starting out as a stand-up and finding that like actually braying stag parties aren't that into my stories about pushing a dessert trolley around a golf club. Um, <laughs> you know, actually at the time, it's like so many things in life, isn't it? You go like, oh, at the time it's awful, but afterwards in retrospect, you go, oh, that was a very, that was very good learning there. That was very good learning. But at the time you go, oh God, I'd rather do anything but this, I'd rather get, you know, be desperate to get out of this. But um, afterwards you, you can sort of go, oh, well, of course I took a lot from that. So you can be quite smug about it, can't you? And I think it'd be a really good book for uh, any parents to read because I think parents, are, there must be lots of parents like your parents who end up with a child and it's like a foundling <laughs> child. You kind of think, how did we, where did that child come from? What did we do? <laughs> yeah, who did because, we upset? Because it, you, yeah. I, you, I've seen it with friends of mine. You, they have kids and you think that kid <laughs> is, is, <laughs> is totally, it's like the kid is totally self-contained. I mean, do you remember, yes. do your parents, when you, presumably your parents have read the book. Oh, yeah, they did. I made sure they read it before it came out. Otherwise, because, you know, it's kind of difficult to change it, isn't it? Once once they printed it and yes. sent it to all the shops. You're in there scribbling um, so on I, each I page. <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't. I, that's not true. I'm changing their names. Um, and um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, they, they seem to have really liked it. I mean, I didn't I didn't wait around to see exactly what I thought, but I did pay for them to have a new front door. So that sort of shut them up. But um, they um, but they yeah, they, they seem to have enjoyed. Um, they seem to, they seem to have enjoyed it, really. But I think, yeah. It, I mean, from from as soon as I could talk, I sort of spoke like David Niven, which was quite something because, you know, like they're from South East London. My dad, a coach driver. My mum worked in uh, the Army and Navy in Bromley High Street. Uh, that's a shop, uh, not the military. And um, and they, uh, you know, were just quite normal people. And then suddenly they had this kind of little Lord Fauntleroy mixed with I, I Noel Coward kind of prancing around their house and demanding things and dressing up in a sort of blazer uh, when really they just wanted to go to Woolworths and pick up some bits. And I'd be sort of like, like I was going on a yacht and I was six. And and um, I thought I was so weird for being like that. But since writing the book, people send me messages and go, "Oh, my son dresses as, dress, dresses as a as a as a, like a coal miner from the 1920s. Please help." And um, and it's kind of it turns out like you say, there's lots of you know. My 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 daughter thinks she's a Victorian princess. What, what can I do? Um, so it turns out there's lots of children. Maybe we are just ghosts uh, sent from another yes. another world, another universe, or maybe we're just weirdos. But I don't I don't, I don't know. But I sort of go. Well, you may as well embrace it, eh? You may as, it's better than being boring. But also, it makes me love your parents that they that oh, they don't. just they just kind of went okay, <laughs> because they must have been so they must have been so scared for you sending their little gentleman off to school, thinking this is not going to go well. This is only going to go one way. Yeah, I think looking back, I realise now how because at the time I was like, Mum. Stop having a go at me just because I want to dress up as a, an Edwardian butler. Uh, it's just me being me. It's, I'm just trying to rebel in my own way, okay? Um, but back then, they must have been thinking, oh, no, he is going to have a terrible experience when he goes to the Glades Shopping Centre in Bromley and um, and goes to, you know, goes to pick up some cufflinks from past times, if you remember that shop. What a wonderful shop that was. Um, and, um, yeah, because now, of course, I've got friends who have children, and I see how 
protective they are. And sometimes, you know, even I imagine myself with, well, not a child, but maybe a dog. And I go, I'd be so protective of, of that dog. Imagine if it was putting itself in harm's way. You know, basically, I was like lying down on the train tracks going, I can't believe I've been run over by a train. Um, but, um, but, uh, <laughs> I but wonder I who's was... going to be bullied in this room. Is it the boy yeah. in the bowler hat? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I was so, so freakish for being like it. And then putting it down on the page, I found that loads of people have gone, oh, yes, I was like that. And I was fascinated by wing collars and silk top hats. And, oh, I love the films of Fred Astaire when everybody else was, you know, kind of listening to, like, garage music. Like, what's that? Like, that's what everybody, when I was growing up, listened to. Like, music that got advertised on a roundabout um, or, or was, you know, distributed on, like, a pirate radio station from someone's bedroom. And um, and I was listening to, you know, like I say, Noel Coward and Gladys Cooper and um, Gertrude Lawrence recordings. And and I think, in my looking back, I realised I was just sort of creating my own little world which felt safer. That's, I think, all I was doing, just sort of avoiding the real world by trying to create a... I'm a fantasist. That's and, it. Yeah, I'm but a... obviously it works for you. You know, being this this man, it works for you. You're very successful. But if people tried to do kind of amateur psycho analysis, having read the book, have they tried to kind of kind of go? Well, I'll tell you what's happened here. This is a classic um, case well, of. Uh, well, not as much as I'd hoped, actually. No, <laughs> <laughs> nobody's come up with the solution. Um, no, they just go, "Oh, that's great," and that's that is nice. I should be grateful for that. Well, what I've learned, I think, is if you feel odd in any way, or you feel kind of self-conscious, actually, if you lean into that, and rather than going, "Oh no, but I'm I'm, I'm fine, really. I'm I'm normal, really," um, you, you that wastes a lot of energy, and it never really works because even if I was trying to blend in, there was always a sense about me. You know, if I had, you know, back when I had hair, I'd slick it back with Brill Cream to, with a side parting. Like, you, you know, like I was thinking I was Cary Grant or something. Um, and, um, of course, that gives you away when you're in a, you know, a house party in 1997. You know, people <laughs> people didn't dress like that. But so also you, it's, just, you but, may as well lean into it. And it is that odd thing, isn't it? Some kids, they want to stand out. They want to be noticed. Like, even the, the like, it's on the first page. It's in the introduction. <laughs> you talk about that thing pretending to be lost in the supermarket. <laughs> I was attention-seeking, is basically it. Um, yes, yes. I mean, I'm sure a therapist would describe it as, I needed validation, but um, we're not American, so we don't describe it as that. And yeah. I was probably just quite attention-seeking, and I would try my best to get lost in a supermarket so that I'd hear my name read out on the panel, <laughs> and my mum would have to come get me from the information. I was talking to Marion Keyes. I, I was talking to Marion Keyes. Oh, yeah. She was saying, when she was a girl, she used to get excited seeing their family name in the phone book. <laughs> 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 we were ex-directory, but um, <laughs> oh. uh, no, actually, we, we, we were, no, we weren't. We need, we loved people phoning. It was always very exciting. But um, they, but yeah, I just, I don't know what it was. And also, I loved. I just wanted to be friends with sort of my mum's friends. I didn't want to have friends my own age. So, getting stuck at the information desk in the supermarket meant that I'd probably make make friends with like a forty-five-year-old woman called Brenda, and that would be a lovely that would be a lovely exchange for me. Because guess what? Like people at school my age were were not really into, you know, acting out the coronation of Elizabeth I. And, um, and, and, but actually I found with Brenda on the information desk in the supermarket, I could have quite an honest chat and she could tell me about her, you know, whatever, whatever her worries were with her marriage. And I could just, um, I could just listen and possibly offer some advice. I was, you know, it was, <laughs> I, should be, I should be talking to your friend who wrote in earlier. But, um, but yeah, I was basically just enjoying, I did, and I enjoyed it when I went around to see my friends because I'd go and talk to their mum in the kitchen and talk about their, you know, cookerhood. Yeah, play date. Here's, well, I brought you Tom. Let's talk about Liner. Uh, Tom shame Allen, next. No Shame, is published now. And it's, it's uh, I mean, it's very funny, but it is also heartbreaking and, and very sweet. Moving. It's, it's, yes, Moving. It, all of those things. It's everything Thank you want you. in a book. <laughs> it's the Teresa Akin of memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, Tom, it's been lovely talking to you. Uh, hopefully oh, we'll chat again so soon. Much. All right. I hope so. See you soon. Take Cheers. care. Okay. Bye. 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 Take the duvet off now. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Please welcome to the airwaves, Greg Wallace. Hi, Greg. Hey, how you doing, Graham? I'm very well. Nice to talk to you. Do you know what? I never noticed before that you spell your Greg with a double G at the end. Yeah, G-R-E-double-G. And people have been incorrectly spelling my name for years. I would have. For years. I would have. Yeah. And, and it's not short for Gregory either. It's a, it's a Greg. I've got a baby Sid who's not a Sydney. And I've got a, <laughs> I've got a daughter Libby who's not an Elizabeth. 
we're odd ass Wallace. <laughs> uh, Greg Wallace, this was such a. I watched the first episode, Barcelona. And this is your big weekend with Greg Wallace. Starts this Friday mm. at nine on Channel Five. I watched the Barcelona episode, and I was saying earlier, it's just oh, it's so lovely just to see a big sunny city with lots of people. It's just gorgeous. When did you film this? Uh, this one was done almost a year ago. Almost a year ago. Uh, we did manage to get some done during COVID when there were windows of opportunity, when there were corridors open. We were kind of COVID hopping in and out of different cities of Europe that would allow us to. But do you know what? When you watch that, that Barcelona one, it's the simple things that you took for granted. Just sitting out in a street with a drink, watching the world go by in the sunshine. Yeah. Not the expensive stuff, not the five-star experiences, just the simple things that we're not allowed to do anymore. So I hope that's a bit of escapism for all of us that haven't been allowed to go anywhere. Actually, I read a quote. You, you, you're you an interviewer and you're talking about how you you judge a city or, or a culture mm. by kind of what peasant food is like. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think the five-star experience you can get all over the world, and I think that tends to be international. And I don't judge a city or a country by how good its top-end food is. I judge a country's food culture by how good its cheapest stuff is. Then you know, if you get like, you know, you go to Barcelona or you go to Rome, you're picking up stuff really cheaply that's really good. Sadly, in this country, we're really good at top end and we're getting better at mid-range, but our bottom end is still rubbish. Oh, oh I don't know. Scotch egg. They've, they've, had, a re- they've had a resurgence. <laughs> Does that sound fair though, Graham? It does, doesn't No, it? I know what you mean. Like you, when you get just like something from a little street vendor or something in Barcelona, it's delicious. I mean, I say yeah, that. I mean, I wander up and down there with like a cone of ham. You know, it's, it, it's, it's good and, it, and, it, and it's cheap and it's, it's quality and it's accessible to everybody. So I haven't been in Barcelona for, oh, I think, since the 80s. And so when it came up at the beginning, uh, Barcelona, I went, oh, it'll be great to see Sagrada Familia, the big uh, cathedral. It'll be great mm. to see that finished. Still not finished. <laughs> Still not finished. No, or maybe Gaudi never ever meant it to be finished. And we went to a house he designed as well that's got like a blue mosaic dragon on its roof. I mean, it is quite an extraordinary place. And of course, it's a city with a beach at the end of it as well. What we did, and we did deliberately in this series, is we deliberately did everything as cheaply as we could. What I'm really hoping is that people are sitting there with a pen and paper or putting messages into their phone thinking, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to copy this exactly like he's done it because none of it is expensive. And when the plague is over and we're allowed to get on aeroplanes again, go and do it. And did you really do it in three days? I mean, I know it's structured as these long weekends, but did you really, did you film it in three days? Yeah, yeah. Well, we might have cheated a little bit and gone to three and a half sometimes. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Where else else did you go, Greg? What what other cities Ah, are we going to see? Mate, it's just been brilliant. Honestly, uh, Barcelona, Rome, Berlin... Amsterdam, which is fun, but may, ha- may have the worst food in Europe. Uh, Budapest, my now all-time favourite food destination, Istanbul. Venice, uh, Venice. I actually got on a kayak in Venice. Forget the, forget the expensive gondola. Get yourself in a plastic kayak and paddle up and down. <laughs> Not quite as romantic, but still as much fun. And, and how did this happen? Did you win a competition or something? It's... <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what this business is like. You simply get a phone call, don't you? You get a phone call one day and, you know, somebody has had a chat with somebody else in a corridor, somebody who you're never, ever going to meet has made a decision somewhere, and you just get this phone call and say, listen, do you fancy, have you got the time to, to make this work? And that was such an incredible adventure to keep on hitting different European cities, some that I've been to before, some that I hadn't, but to get go out there and get shown around the city by people who live there. It's just been, honestly, it was so much fun. I probably hadn't drank too much. I certainly drank too much, but it was brilliant fun. And presumably, it, you, was it the same crew each time? Did you become like a little kind of travelling family unit? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, me and the soundy. Me and the sound guy, we were the only ones that did every single episode together, but pretty much, yeah. If we did, like, four back-to-back, then we'd have two crews. One would come in and film it, and then they'd go into the edit while the other ones took over. When we were in Venice, because we didn't have a crew van, because there's no streets, we had, like, a crew boat. We were like a team of commandos. You just, like, <laughs> pull, up, pull up on a canal, jump out with a camera crew. 
<laughs> film a piece of camera back into our little barge again. Honestly, it was brilliant. Absolutely and, brilliant. And what is your schedule like? Because when you're doing something like MasterChef or Celebrity MasterChef, oh. do you film them kind of in one block? Or how? what's the, what's the schedule like for those shows? Yeah, it, I mean, MasterChef can take up to three months. Oh, can it? Will, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a big studio show. But there are gaps in between. Uh, I've got a decent agent. Funny enough, I know you know who he is. Oh, I do. And, uh, yeah, he'd get <laughs> Dylan, and he'd get hold of the, the master chef. He'd go, listen, do us a favour. How many Mondays to Thursdays can you do so that I can have the Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays? <laughs> you know, help me out. Help me out. So we managed to, uh, to to squeeze it in. And my lovely wife, Anna, she was because there was one point I was doing four or five back-to-back. She was flying out to have dinner with me and flying back again. And I was saying to Anna, do you mind doing this? She was like, no, this feels really sophisticated. <laughs> Where are you going, Anna? Well, I'm having dinner with my husband in Rome. <laughs> Actually, that is fabulous. Oh, it, but like I say, it is just, yeah, it, it makes your mouth water for all sorts of reasons. You just, you want to be there. You want to experience it. Now, Greg, back in the olden days when we could travel and then we could also go and see friends and things, would people invite you for dinner? Because I would not invite you for dinner. I would not want to cook for you. No, listen, that's a brilliant question. And, you know, I've since I started MasterChef nearly 17 years ago, I have never, ever been invited to someone's house, which I've for dinner, which I think is really unfair. As if I'm going to go in and start critiquing, you know, what am I going to do? Give them a quarterfinal place or tell them to go home? I mean, it's highly unlikely, right? People also say to me, Listen, this question, do restaurants get nervous when you walk in? I go, how would I know? What does a scared restaurant look like? I've got no idea. Listen, I approach food the same way as anybody else does. And what happens is your expectation goes up or down depending on where you are. Let me tell you, I've never, ever been disappointed in a chip shop. I've regularly been disappointed in a Michelin star restaurant. Never been disappointed in a KFC or a McDonald's. How about that? Do you know what I mean? Because your expectation goes up and down. Okay, but here, tell me this then. When you travel, when you're in a country Mm. where they don't have MasterChef, they don't know who you are, do you notice the service changes? (laughs) Yeah, 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 it does. I definitely, yeah. I mean, being on the telly, as you know, <laughs> as you know, being on the telly, it means that you don't get any snobby sommeliers. You don't get any dodgy tables next to the gents. Yeah. And you can even turn up every now and again if you forgot to book. Yeah, that doesn't happen in, in, uh, in, in other countries. But, to, but it's a relief. You know, I can walk around other countries holding my wife's hand and nobody's filming us as we walk up the high street. It's, 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 it's a relief. But the and, service isn't as good. And you have transformed yourself. I mean, you are buff as a buff mm. thing now. And, you know, that doesn't happen by accident. That's incredible discipline to do what you've done. So uh, what happens oh. with kind of tasting food now? Are you thinking, do you, do you, like, oh. do you go, do you have a little, do you go, you have a little bit of mental breakdown and just kind of eat it all? <laughs> Honestly, I don't know what the MasterChef challenges are going to be, right? And literally, I do look after myself now. I'm very careful about what I eat. I've got no control over what happens in I can literally walk into Marshall and I go, Greg, we've got a dessert challenge today. And I go, right, there's nine of them. Does that mean I'm going to have nine? I'm going to have to face nine puddings. Listen, you can only take charge of what you've got control over, right? You just have to be stricter at breakfast and dinner. I've got no control. Can you imagine in the middle of our ship? Sorry, I'm not tasting that. You put far too much cream in it. Why didn't you, why didn't you put something, something less fat? Have a little less sugar without you. It's just not going to happen, is it? Do you no. mind if I cut the fat off? Like... Yeah, no. As a viewer, as a viewer, you do not want you do not want the person tasting it to go. Oh no, it tastes too rich. Yeah. <laughs> And when did you start the transformation? How long did it take from kind of beginning to now? Yeah, well, I don't think it ever stops. I mean, now I'm just over 12 stone. I'm less than 15%, sorry, less than 18% fat. And bearing in mind, I'm, I'm 56 years old now. But I, I still have goals I'd like to get to. I might lose another few pounds. I'd like to strip a little bit of fat. But I did it gently. I did it slowly. I've got a weight loss and fitness site called, called Show Me Fit. And I've shown how... I did it in there. I did it gradually. Do you know, I've never been on a diet, Graham. I I eat carbs. I love a pint of beer. I love a glass of wine. You know, you really don't have to be hungry to lose weight. You just got to learn about a healthier way of life. Yeah, you just just need to be not stuffed. (laughs) Yeah, you just... (laughs) 
you can have a tree. You just your life can't be full of trees. It's got to be a, a, a tree and not a, not an everyday thing. But but I still I still have goals. I suppose it's you know really. I suppose I, I, to lose four stone. I reckon about a year, eighteen months. I reckon. That is some going four stone. And also, can I just say, you carried that four stone really well. I mean, I knew you'd lost weight, but I wouldn't have said it was four stone. That's incredible. Yeah, four and a half stone. But I was out all the time. You know, I, I used to, you know, I used to go out drinking at the end of work every day. <laughs> I'd, I'd go out for dinner regularly. Yeah, yeah. I'd Mystery solved. <laughs> yeah, and you, you know, and then you'd look at the mirror and you think, God, I look big. Why? Maybe it was the extra pint of beer. Maybe, maybe if I didn't have the chocolate bar, but it wasn't. It was the and but slowly changing my life slowly and gradually, and that's what I believe in doing it. Doing it in a in a comfortable way has, has kind of worked for me. Because then when you get there, because you've done it gradually, you're going to stay there. You're going to stay there. I don't, really don't believe in any of this keto stuff and this Atkins stuff and this fasting stuff and this, you know, only eating food if you're facing the West with your finger in your ear. <laughs> I don't believe any of that rubbish. I really don't. Well, you are a walking ad for whatever you've done. You look great. Mm. If you, if you want to see uh, Greg Wallace eating and drinking and walking around in the sunshine, big weekends with Greg Wallace starts <laughs> this Friday at nine on Channel 5. Uh, lovely to talk to you, Greg. Take care of yourself. Bless you, mate. And uh, you, we'll, mate. we'll see you along the way. Take care now. Bye-bye. 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 Coming up soon, we go behind the scenes of the life and music of the brilliant Nile Rogers, but not before Anne Cleves gives us more crime thrills in her new book, The Darkest Evening. Hello, Anne Cleves. Hello, Graham. How are you? I'm fine. It's a bit chilly, but it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, staying warm. You're staying in, you're staying warm. Um, now, I am. This book, it has a quite a traditional uh, start. It's almost Agatha Christie, snowed in, country mansion, a house party. Were you aware, like, was, it, was that kind of accidental or did you want to give it a kind of uh, more traditional uh, beginning? I think I wanted to play with that form. You know, it's, it's lovely. It's very reassuring, isn't it? We all needed reassuring, I think, at the moment. So the idea of the snow and the forest and people stuck in a big country house and then, of course, a murder... But then it brings, you bring Vera into the mix and we find out a little bit more about her family and her background too. Yes, because I wasn't sure. Did we know already that Vera's uh, father was to do with this quite rich family? Did we know that already? I think I always knew, but maybe I didn't <laughs> tell the reader before. <laughs> well, we know now. We know, we know yeah. now. Brenda knew because when, I, when she first took on the role of Vera, the director asked me to, because you know how Brenda works, she really wants to understand the character, to write a bit of a backstory. So I certainly, Brenda certainly knew, coming from a big house. And I think you've told me before that now when you write the Vera books, Brenda's in your head. Yeah, I hear her, I hear the, when I'm writing dialogue, I hear her voice because she does those witty put-downs so brilliantly, doesn't she? I sometimes write a line and think, oh, I, I hope Brenda enjoys saying that and I hope the scriptwriter leaves it in because I think she will. Because the, so this book, The Darkest Evening, which is out in paperback on Thursday, the 18th of February, I should alert readers to, uh, is this definitely, go, is, are they going to adapt this into uh, one of the series? Well, I don't know because things are a bit up in the air with the filming. They did, they filmed two new episodes before Christmas, but then we had lockdown and I'm not entirely sure what's going on now. Oh, right. Uh, but, uh, but presumably, because they, they've, had to, they've had to make lots of programmes that aren't books. Yes. Yeah, they do because I don't write fast enough. They, <laughs> film, four, <laughs> they film four episodes a year and that's a bit beyond me. And... I mean, do they show you the scripts or do you just trust them? Do you kind of go, oh, look, it's, I, I, you know what you're doing, you're fine? Or do you, do you have a kind of thing where, uh, let me just check that you haven't broken any of the Vera rules? No, I wouldn't dare do that because they do it so well. And from the beginning, I decided I wasn't going to meddle. It always felt a bit like giving a child up for adoption. You know, you wouldn't <laughs> give it up without trusting who you were giving it to. But then you've given up the right to meddle after that, I think, because I don't know what makes good television. And the director and the scriptwriters do seem to know what makes good television, because I love watching them too. You know, I've watched the, the, the non-adaptation ones and work out who's done it. 
like everyone else on a Sunday night. And I guess you must feel, I mean, having Brenda Blethen in there is must be such a gift because you kind of think you really are in safe hands because she is Vera. Oh, she absolutely is. And she's, well, a double Oscar nominee. So somebody says, well, we'd like Brenda Blethyn to play your, your character. You're not going to say no, thank you, are you? I just, I was so delighted when I found out. And then she takes it so seriously. So she does read all the books and she calls it going back to the source material. And occasionally I'll get a little text from her just... Um, querying something or wanting to know a bit more and she's so generous she's really she read a chapter of the darkest evening and we put that out online in the autumn um, because we couldn't do any live events of course you know people authors were struggling a bit and booksellers were struggling so how kind was that that she gave up some of her time and, and read a chapter for me that's only the other thing i've never heard of this before but uh if you go to panmacmillan.com, you can sort of play a murder mystery thing with The Darkest Evening. How Do you know how that works? Or do you know as much as I do? Well, yes. <laughs> I, know, I know how that works because I wrote the script. Oh, OK. So, I, so oh, um, you're all over it. OK. <laughs> yeah, no, I, was, I was afraid I'd ask you and you'd be like, uh, I don't know what <laughs> that is. Oh, good. You do. Uh, tell, no, us, no, tell, I, tell us I what do happens. Know. What yeah. happens? Uh, well, that, that started... Years and years ago, when I was reader in residence up here in the northeast, and a library came up to me and said, we want something that will pull new readers in. What about, can you write us a murder mystery? So I wrote a, a murder mystery called The Body in the Library, set in a library, and there were four suspects, and um, we got local library staff to dress up, and they read the scripts, and, the, and they, people flooded in. People who'd never been into a library before turned up and so that was I just thought it was fun and so with the darkest evening the script is um is there and people can use it but the idea is that we we can't all meet up now we can't have live events but there are people doing zoom pub quizzes and zoom get-togethers and I do Friday night zoom drinks with my pals but you could do a zoom murder mystery and if nine none of if all of you are too shy to act it out we've even got real actors who are who have acted out the, the suspects and you just have to work out who's done it. So it is great fun. It's a, available for reading groups or street WhatsApp groups or anybody who wants to have a go. And it's free. Just and go and you, give it a go. All I'm hearing is I don't have to leave my house. So I'm, <laughs> I think that sounds lovely. You do not have to. Yeah, and I think, you know, get get some nibbles in, get a glass of wine in and sit there in this really gloomy weather and pretend that you're in um, Brockburn in the snow and you're trying to work out who the murderer is. And it won't help you to have read the book because it's a completely different murderer. <gasps> wow, you are so... I mean, I, that's incredible. Because you would think if you have a plot, another plot, <laughs> you'd be like, I'll have that for a book. I'm not giving it away in a murder mystery thing. But well done you. When I'm writing the book, I'm not entirely sure who's done it until quite near the end. So it was just one of the other suspects. Ah, OK. And you mentioned your new series there, uh, the one set in Devon, Two Rivers. Yeah. And I was thinking, because place is so important in your, uh, in your books. And I was like, how do, you, you know, how do you know all these different places? But you grew up in North Devon then. I did, yeah. I moved there when I was 11, fell in love with it. And um, I was there until I left home. So my dad was a village school teacher. So that's where we went. And still got such great friends from that time. I think that's why I dropped out of university, really, because it never quite lived up to, to school. Isn't that funny? Where did you go to university? Sussex. Oh, OK. Yeah. It was quite posh. <laughs> Not I was for in you. the bus once and I heard someone say, oh, yes, Anne, yeah, she's the one that looks as if she's just come off the farm. Wow. So I thought that probably wasn't the place for me, really. <laughs> so when did you head back to the northeast then? Well, um, th we moved to the northeast in the mid eighties and just felt at home very, very soon here. Yeah, and it seemed a good place to write traditional, to set traditional murder mysteries because there are still villages that don't have lots of commuters and second homers in. There are villages like the former pit villages with lots of gossip and everybody knows you and knows about you, so it was a good place to, to write. And Two Rivers, that's coming to TV as well, am I right? 
It is, yeah. One of the friends, one of the school friends, gave me a, a, a ring yesterday. You'll never guess what the the um, the film crew have been in and the location scout, and they might use my daughter's house. She said, so <laughs> that was nice. That is nice. Uh, now in lockdown, I think a lot of people, because of lockdown, they're they're finding the time and they're turning to writing for the first time in their lives. But for people like you, who are you know, you are so prolific when it's not lockdown, has lockdown helped you write or has it been a hindrance or has it knocked you off your game? What's What does it feel like? I think it's, it is very similar and we're very lucky because we can still feel that we're working and we're still doing something productive. And writing's an escape, isn't it? It's like reading. Some, some, suddenly you're somewhere else in your head. So if I, I was writing the, the new Matthew Venn and so I was in North Devon in a heat wave throughout quite a miserable early spring. Anne Cleves, thank you very much. Uh, the Darkest oh, Evening... Oh, lovely to talk to you. Oh, lovely to talk to you. The Darkest Evening is out in paperback on February the 18th. All right, take care, Anne. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Niall Rogers, hello. Hey, Graham, how are you, man? Well, I'm very excited. I'm, <laughs> I was a bit lacklustre. That, that song's tipped me over the edge. <laughs> uh, what time of the day is it with you? It must be very early, is it? Um, it's uh, just 7 a.m. <gasps> wow. And now, have you done an all-nighter, or uh, have you just got up early for us? You, you know, I did half an all-nighter. Um, <laughs> I was just falling asleep, and I got a phone call from a really great friend of mine wanting to buy a substantial portion of my guitar collection, which I'm putting up for auction. Wow. So uh, Yeah, and if... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, no, I mean, tell us. Where, you know, I'm sure there's some guitar fans listening to this. Uh, where, <laughs> where, when's the auction? What's happening? How, what's going on? Oh, I, I haven't um, come up with the date or anything like that yet because I have so many amazing guitars. We're actually just going through them all now fixing them up and making sure that uh, that they're playable. Because when I bought these instruments, I wasn't going to start a museum. I actually was going to play them. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> I know, well, they, so- say, they started breeding like rabbits, the next thing I know. <laughs> and do some I have of- more guitar... And do some of them have stories? Sorry, do some of them have stories? I mean, are are some of them the guitars you've played on really famous tracks or are they just guitars you've collected over the years? Yeah, no, no. Um, Quite a few of them have stories. Um, There's there's something up on, um, I have on socials now, on, on all the platforms where I did a thing where I have the rarest Django Reinhardt guitar in the world. And, um... No one knew that I owned it because I bought it God knows how many years ago. And so I played some old-fashioned gypsy blues on it and people were sort of going crazy yesterday. And that's how this guy called me late at night. Really late at night. And did you sell or was he a bit... Was he? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not doing it like that. I'm going to be a lot more organized. Um, uh, but I was just announcing uh, that I was going to do it. It's coming up. And I'm preparing for it. Well, listen, so I when wasn't actually, as I was just saying, I wasn't actually trying to sell it at that moment. <laughs> well, when we know the dates, I'll announce it on here to, because I'm sure people would, yeah, they they will be biting your arm off to get those. Um, and presumably, one of the guitars will be because you re-recorded the guitar parts. I think for Everybody Dance, the, the oh, version yeah, you just played. Oh yeah, I replayed that. I had to. And so how did this happen? Cedric and Franklin, did they come to you? Did they ask you? Or were you always going to be involved? Or were they just asking for permission? Um, No, they actually probably had a vision. uh, And they came to me because they thought that they needed my guitar style on it. They needed my guitar chucking style on it. And um, so when they came to me, um, I'm very non-judgmental when it comes to other artists wanting to reinterpret my music so I always say yes Um, typically the only time I recoil is when they want to change the lyric Um, but every now and then I'll say yes to that too so anyway the way this happened is that when they called me um, I just got into the groove and I started playing along with it I was like going yes okay you know I could hear this 
And I wasn't trying to judge it by the quality of the first one because it was a whole different era. It was a whole different thing. The disco days were, you know, a long time ago and we had to uh, make records based on the technology of the time. But now we could do it, uh, you know, they could just send me the track um, and I could play along with it. And next thing you know, it's, it's alive. It's alive! And tell me this, for people as not as cool as Nile Rodgers, who are Cedric and Franklin? <laughs> <laughs> well, Cedric, Gervais and Franklin, they're pretty good DJs. They're, okay. um, yeah, they've had some pretty hot stuff. Um, but, but you know what's the, the great thing about the, the world right now is that so many new people are coming out of almost uh, seemingly nowhere because uh, they have access to the world market you know, through, through the internet, and, you know, and they, they just can reach me. And so many of the artists uh, will convince me because either they have a really great rap, they have a great personality, or they have a song that just makes me want to dance or, or, or react in many ways. I, I've, I've got a bunch of jazz songs coming out from young artists, you know, in their 20s who just took a chance and said, let me cold call Nile. Because um, it is interesting how the world has changed so much. I, I think we talked before, I read your autobiography, Le Freak, which is just such a great book. And in there, I love you talking about um, when you used to, you know, record a record, you would bring it immediately from the studio to the DJ in a club. Exactly. Well, those days are gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of ways. But I just, I love that, that you, you would immediately see if a dance floor reacted to a record or not. Yeah, that, that was, we, we wanted to get the, the thumbs up or thumbs down Coliseum type effect. Like, and, and what was great about that is we were young, we were completely anonymous, and even when we became more well-known, uh, I did this exact same thing with Bowie, and that may have been one of the most interesting nights because I went to a punk rock club, and I said, hey, I got the new Bowie record. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they thought it was going to be like, you know, um, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like his previous album. And they were all on the floor slam dancing and doing whatever to maybe, you know, uh, the Sex Pistols or something. And... Um, uh, I played this David Bowie white label record and it was Let's Dance. And for a minute, the crowd just stopped. Can you imagine a crowd of people who are slam dancing, blah, 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 and, and have, you know, they're just going bananas. And this calm came over the whole club because they stopped. And typically, when that happens to a DJ, it's a disaster. They're going to start screaming, yeah, hey, man, get that off, that sucks, get that yeah. They just stopped and they listened for a second. And then when we sing the little, um, uh, I guess we call it a dominant, a dominant seven uh, pyramid, we sing, ah, 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 ah. And let's dance, the groove comes in. The place started dancing and screaming, going crazy. And the DJ said, can I have a copy of this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, you know, in that book, you talk about being in the clubs and, you know, the years of Studio 54, all that time. I, I so wish I'd in, had some of that. I mean, and that was your that was your work, but it was also your fun for so many years. What's fun now? What what how does Nile Rogers have fun now that that world is is gone? Um, in many ways, the same way. Of course, I have fun just playing music. And now I get to play more music than ever before because I'm sitting at home at my recording studio. And, uh, and I heard you talking to those lovely ladies earlier. Well, it's snowing here today. I'm in Westport, Connecticut. And um, I, I live on the water, so my boat is covered with snow. The dock is covered with snow. And I'm right in my recording studio. So I just make records all day long, and it's it's so much fun for me. I probably have a hundred records coming out this year. I actually rebuilt my gym 
which has a, a swimming pool in it, we drained the water, covered it up, and turned it into a stage and just did a new video with Keith Urban. I mean, <laughs> Nile Rodgers will not be stopped. This is, that's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. It is interesting. I mean, the list of people you've collaborated with over the years is just immense. I'm just wondering, is there anyone you haven't collaborated with, but you'd like to? Are there kind of up-and-coming people? Are there new people? And you're thinking, oh, yeah, actually, I could work with them. I could do something special with them. Yeah, well, I have a great... A grand, uh, <laughs> I'm getting my... I'm getting my adjectives uh, screwed up here. Uh, okay, I have a, a an amazing new record, at least amazing from my point of view, and everybody seems to be responding to it. Uh, it just came out a few days ago from S.G. Lewis called One More Song, and it's a real club banger, but not in the traditional sense. Um, when I say traditional, meaning the current music scene. It's it's uh, it feels like he's a semi old soul, but we're uh, it's it's pretty high tech, you know, when you see the video and you see how we perform it. But it's, it's a great song, really great song. Everybody dance. The reimagining of the 1978 chic dance classic is available now. Nile Rogers, you probably want to go back to bed. Uh, so why do why don't you? There's no reason to leave the <laughs> no, house. <laughs> No, I'm going to get up, Graham. I'm going to get up and take a walk in the snow. And record another another song. <laughs> it's yeah, a, it's It's 101 up. now. It's 101. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing Emily Sanding now, and uh, I was working on her last night. So I'll uh, take a walk, and I'll listen to the song, and then I'll send it to her and say, what do you think? Did we get it right? Uh, listen, incredible work, I think, Niall Rogers. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for getting up early and joining us this morning. Niall Rogers, everybody. Bye-bye. Okay. Oh. Graham Norton. Hey! Thanks so much for listening to the Graham Norton Radio Show podcast. I'm back on Virgin Radio from 9.30 on Saturday morning, and the next episode of the podcast will be out first thing the following Monday. Speak then. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Virgin Radio.